new chapter. I just have to prove to y'all pastors aren't infallible. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, and I would love for you to do that, to Mark chapter 9. We'll be looking at a very familiar passage, but I hope one that we can illuminate a little better for our own understanding this morning of what it's supposed to mean. The context for this, this event that's going to happen here, the context is really all the way back into Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and we memorize that passage. Jesus was preaching in the area, and he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And this morning in this passage, we're going to see the kingdom of God a little bit. You'll never see the whole thing on this side of glory. But, and then in Mark 8.31, which Jesus spoke to the disciples a couple of weeks ago about when we covered that, he said, the Son of Man must be rejected, must suffer, must be killed and rise again. And that's the purpose that God has given us for this event. The context, the background, and the purpose are those two passages. Mark is writing to lead his readers and to lead us to the truth that Jesus is the Christ who died for our sins and rose for our glorification. So let's read this event. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Follow along as I read this event. Then he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, led them up a high mountain by themselves to be alone. He was transfigured in front of them, and his clothes became dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because he did not know what to say since they were terrified. A cloud appeared, overshadowing them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this event. And as glorious as it seems to us, it's even more amazing to see it through the eyes of Peter, James, and John. May we remember their, their perspective at that very moment this morning. And may it speak to our souls and our hearts as we hear this sermon from you, Father. This sermon that's both visible and verbal. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered where we get the doctrine of Christ being God? That he is fully God and fully man. If you've ever wondered where we get that doctrine, that he is God as well as man, well, this is one of the places we get it from. This is one of the revelations in Scripture that we, we see that passage. This passage comes intentionally, though, right after Mark 8, 34 through 38, which we talked about a minute ago. 
Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, follow him. If you want to try to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose it for Christ, you're going to save it. It's not going to benefit you to gain the whole world and lose your soul. You can't give anything in exchange for your soul. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to be looking for those who have given up everything for him, who have surrendered their heart to him. Don't be ashamed of him. That intentionally brings us right to this passage, right to this event. God the Son makes all of those commands that he just gave us in 34 through 38 of chapter 8 possible. You can't pull them off without Jesus. And that's why he put it there. God uses a tremendous event to visually as well as verbally proclaim to his disciples that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And God the Son right now in front of them demonstrates a clear unveiling of his deity and the foretelling of his messiahship. So we're going to see that. What message came from the unveiling that Jesus did? Well, I'm glad you asked. First of all, Jesus gives two sermons here. He gives a visible sermon and he gives a verbal sermon. First of all, seeing the real Jesus. So these men have spent probably two years with Jesus, wandering around all over Galilee and other areas, and they've just seen a man doing some miraculous things, but they've not seen the real Jesus. And so Jesus is going to give them that glimpse. But he sets the stage in verse 1. He says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. There's been a lot of turmoil about that statement that Jesus makes. Some think, thinking that some people are going to live all the way till Jesus returns. That's silly. And the other things is people are, are, have actually thought that this was him talking about something else that didn't happen. But I'm going to tell you, first of all, what is the kingdom event that he's talking about? What are they going to see? Well, it could be one or all of three things. One, the transfiguration, which we just read about. Two, the resurrection. Or three, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Those are the only three things that people standing there would live long enough to see. Not the com second coming of Jesus. So it's either one or all of those three things. Now, the funny thing is, is that Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration. So he could be talking, as far as the some people, he could be talking about those three guys. As far as the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit, 11 of the 12 disciples saw that. Judas wasn't around for either one of those. So he still, it still qualifies as some of the people. And what power? What power is Jesus talking about the kingdom of God coming in? Well, only those three things that are in the lifetime of any of the human beings standing there could come with that kind of power. Only, only those have to have the power of God to come. So any other event would be human-induced inside their lifetime. So it's not a mystery. Scripture helps itself interpret those things. It's not a mystery what Jesus is talking about. He's either talking about the transfiguration, the resurrection, or the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, or all three. He doesn't really narrow it down, but it, it's one of those three. It's not something different. So that's what he's talking about. And then six days later, <laughs> six days later, he takes three disciples up on a mountain, gets alone with them on a high mountain, it says, which is kind of an extra word because there were lots of hills. I've been to Israel. It's lots of hills around. I, I've been to the Rockies. They don't have mountains over there. They have hills in Israel. And so there's a lot of hills. But this says a high mountain. Most likely, it's the mountain, a mountain north of Capernaum called Mount Meron. It's not as high as Hermon, which is 9,000 feet plus, 
and it's, that's too cold for them to spend the night on, which they do spend the night on. And it's not Tabor because Tabor's too small, but that's a whole, that's, that's free of charge. You don't get charged extra for that. So he gets along with Peter, James, and John, and now he reveals a glimpse of his glory. Brightening, dazzling, whiter than any laundry could ever be. Well, this brightening and this dazzling and stuff is not his clothes getting all sparkly and glittery, okay? It's what's coming from inside those clothes. Jesus is revealing some of his glory to these three men because he is God. So if you want a, another picture of it, or if you want another idea about what this is, in your Old Testament, when God came and dwelt in the tabernacle that Moses erected, at God's instructions, when he came and dwelt there, there was a, a fire, a light, a glowing inside the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle. When Solomon finished the temple and God came down and dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the temple, there was this bright, shining, glowing light. It was God. Of course, it wasn't all of God because we have nothing that can contain all of God. So this is what Jesus is doing. He's giving them a glimpse of that what we call Shekinah glory, the beautiful glory that God has, no matter what. And so he's giving them a peek of this. It's, it's, it's marvelous. It's a peek of, of Jesus' divine glory, his divine power, his divine radiance. And these men would later tell the disciples what happened after the resurrection. And so this is one of the passages that we use in theological circles, to get the doctrine of the fact that Christ is God. He's not just glowing for his own benefit. He's not just glowing to show off for James and Peter and John. He's glowing because he's God. And Mark even uses this, this talk about clothes and a launderer, a, a, a wash, guy that washes clothes. He's using that to help his Gentile readers understand because guess what? The Gentile readers that Mark's writing to have no concept of the Shekinah glory that came and dwelt in the tabernacle or came and dwelt in the temple. So Mark's just trying to give them a good word picture of it. And then Elijah and Moses appears. No, they weren't wearing name tags like we do sometimes when we're visiting something. So how did they know it was? I have a feeling Jesus identified them. I don't think Peter, James, and John were that astute to know it was Elijah and Moses. But they did talk with Jesus. Maybe they picked up on that. Um, I'm sure Moses had a long white beard, but I'm sure uh, Elijah did too. So there was no clear keys to that. But they show up. And in Luke's account of this, in Luke 9, they start talking about Jesus' departure, his pending departure that will take place at Jerusalem by his death. They're having a conversation about it. Now, the one thing they're talking about, why they're talking about that is because it's kind of the culmination of both of their ministries. Their time on earth was spent doing that. And so Moses represents the law of God, which came down from a mountain. Oh, interesting. They're on top of a mountain. It, so Moses represents that. And the law foretells of the Messiah. There are things in symbology in the tabernacle and the temple that point, things that God said that point to the Messiah. And then Elijah, who heard God on a mountain, there's a common theme running here, represents the prophets. The prophets who proclaimed constantly, repent, return to the Lord God. All the prophets that you read in, in our Bible, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk, 
Malachi, Obadiah, all of those are pointing to repentance. They're trying to tell the people, you need to repent and turn back to God. And that was Elijah's ministry. And he's represented there by Elijah. And it's all, like I said, a culmination of their ministries. And Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all Scripture. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of all Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. If you ever wonder what a passage means, think about it in terms of Jesus. It might point to you to Jesus. It's meant to. He fulfills all the redemption plan of God. There's no second plan. There's no other way. There's no, oh, he did, God had to do this because something else didn't work out. There's no plan B. There's always been one plan from time past, from eternity past. And see, this revelation here, and these men were there to confirm that. They saw the glory of God revealed. They saw the glory of the Messiah revealed. And then Peter interrupts. <laughs> Good old Peter. We can count on him, right? He interrupts with a real awkward idea. He suggests building three tabernacles is the real word that they use there. They called them shelters in this translation. But he's really wanting to build three tabernacles. And, and you could spend all day reading books about why Peter said this and what Peter was trying to do. And, you know, I don't know what he was trying to do. We know from the story, it doesn't matter what Peter was trying to do or what Peter was even talking about. I mean, he probably wants to stay longer on the mountaintop, don't we all? We get to those mountaintop experiences, we want to stay there. But you got to go through the valleys. And so he may have wanted to just prolong the time there. He also may have tried to say, oh, this is the kingdom of God. It has now come. It is here. Jesus doesn't have to die. That's not, what he's, that's not what's going to happen. But that, you know, who knows what he's doing? But you know what? Jesus ignores his words. Jesus ignores them. He never responds to it, never gives us any inkling in all the accounts of it. It just fades away to nothing. And then God shows up. So God shows up and he confirms the whole thing of why Jesus did this, why he's there. God speaks just like at the baptism of Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But he adds something this time. He adds something very important for Peter, James, and John, and all of us. Listen to him. You know, when God says listen to something, listen to him, we should probably take it serious. We should probably get serious about it. Because you know what? When God says listen, he's really saying obey. He's really saying heed this. He's really saying adhere to what I'm saying. Follow what I am telling you. And he's telling them, listen to what my son is telling you. He will suffer and die and rise. That's one good thing. Of course, they don't know that yet. They think it's a bad thing. Also, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Listen to him. It means to obey him. Submit or you'll be submitted. I mean, that's what, anytime God says listen, we need to, we need to listen. Jesus is God's son, the Christ. So he deserves our allegiance. He deserves our obedience. He deserves our worship. Why? I'm glad you asked. Because his blood paid for your sins. That's all the reason you should need of why to follow Christ, of why to listen to God, Jesus. His blood paid the debt you owe and I owe for our sins to a holy, righteous God. He died in your place. That's why. He died in my place. And then just as quick as the event started, the event was over. The cloud's gone. Elijah and Moses have gone. Jesus and the three disciples are left there all alone. 
the visual sermon was concluded at that point. He closed up his glory, and he was just him and the disciples. But he had one more word for them. Don't tell anybody about this till after I rise from the dead. Do not speak of it until the resurrection. Why? Well, I'm glad you asked again. Because this revelation of Jesus' glory, the visits by Moses and Elijah, and the voice, they wouldn't make any sense until after the resurrection to anybody else. They didn't make sense to Peter, James, and John. They were grappling with it all the way down the mountain. Rise again, what does that mean? It wouldn't make any sense until after the resurrection, after that display of God's power. Only after the resurrection would any of this make sense. So he said, don't tell anyone because they won't understand it. They won't grasp it. But then um, as they descended the mountain, like I said, they were struggling with what rising from the dead is. Now, why were they struggling with that? Because they can't understand Greek? No. (laughs) They can understand what rising from the dead means literally, but they didn't understand what it meant theologically. See, Jews were taught that there will be a resurrection at the end of time. There will be a resurrection at the end of time. Martha even mentioned it at Lazarus' tombs. I know that he'll rise at the resurrection. But, but rising again on your own sometime between now and then, that's unheard of. And they didn't understand that. It's not fathomable to their, their minds. So they didn't grasp it. They didn't grasp it at all. Now all of us kind of goes, what are they, dumb? <laughs> They're not dumb. They just didn't understand it. We have the whole picture which is a blessing. And see, they saw the real Jesus right there, but they still didn't get the sermon until after Jesus had died, rose, and ascended. That's when the real sermon took place. And see, God gave three distinct clues regarding the mystery of Jesus in this passage. The transfigured Jesus, Elijah and Moses, and God's voice. Those are three distinct pieces that talk about him being the Messiah, him being the Savior of the world, him being God's Son and fully God and fully man. And now the three disciples, they have these pieces, but they don't know what to do with them. They don't know what, it's like, what exactly? But the good news is they will, and they did. All three of the synoptic gospels have this event recorded. And John does not record it, but John applies it. Here's how John applies it. In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14 of John chapter 1, he says, The Word became flesh and lived for a while among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John applied it in his gospel. And you see it running all the way through John's gospel. Jesus is God, and his glory has been revealed. But Peter even applied it in a letter that he wrote to some Christians in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19. Peter got it eventually, him and his awkward idea of shelters. He got it, and he writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him at the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day 
dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. In other words, till Jesus returns, believe what they experienced here in this transfiguration. Peter got it, which is always good news. I'm always cheering for Peter because I'm like him, slow sometimes. When we read our Bible sometimes and we attempt to interpret what a passage means, you know, we need to remember a few things, okay? First, we need to ask the question, who's writing this? And not just who, like in name, but who were they? Who are they? Try to find that out. And then why are they writing? It helps us kind of get a bigger picture of why this was written at a particular time to a particular group of people. And it helps us to help maybe understand it and interpret it a little bit. Think about this event we just read before the crucifixion. Think about it. How would this have sounded if someone else had talked about it? This, this event makes little sense until the power of the resurrection is displayed, which is why Jesus said, don't make a fool of yourself and start spilling the beans before I rise. See, Mark's readers even understand what we understand. They understand Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and they understood what res- rising from the dead is. So they were even getting just another glimpse here and another confirmation, like Peter said, a confirmation of the prophecies about Jesus. But those who it happened to on that particular day, they didn't quite get it yet. Now, why do we need this for our souls? You know, the so what of the, of the passage. Why do, what, what does this matter to me? Well, I'm glad you asked. In case you missed last week, Mark 8, 34 through 38, is the reason we need this. Because if you're going to deny yourself and you're going to take up a cross, an instrument of execution, and you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you will need to know that Jesus is the Son of God and is God. You need to know that. And you need to know that in a way that he lives inside my heart, as the children's song says. He lives inside us. So that power that they got a glimpse of in his glory there on that mountain lives in us. So if you believe Jesus was just a man, if you believe that he was just God, but then he became just a man and he came to earth, if you believe that and he didn't have any deity with him, you can't possibly fulfill those commands that Jesus gave us last week. See, Paul wrote to the Colossians that Jesus Christ in you is the hope of glory. Jesus Christ in you is how you can live for Christ, how you can deny yourself. See, Jesus did not give up or lose any of his divine power or qualities when he came to earth. He didn't. He didn't lose any of it. He didn't set any of it aside, per se, in terms of his power and his glory. But he lowered himself. He emptied himself, as Paul talks about in Philippians 2. He gave up the rights at that point in time as the Son of God reigning on high to become a human, but he didn't give up himself, his person in the, in the Trinity. He didn't diminish or lose any of his power. He allowed humanity to kill him because it was God's will. It was God's will for that to happen. It was God's will. that's all through the book of John. If you want to read John and see it, it comes to life. This event here shows Jesus' true identity, his glorious person, his qualities as the second person of the Trinity. This is what this event is designed to do for us. So anytime you have doubt that Jesus was just a man when he was here, put it away. Jesus is fully God. Jesus was fully man when he was here. The only way God's wrath could be dissuaded was by a holy, perfect sacrifice in human form. And that's why Jesus has to be God. 
Believe in Jesus. Trust the God-man for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the real Jesus that we need to always be looking to and holding on to. So, the first sermon, the, ver- the visual sermon is complete. Jesus revealed more of himself as a testimony for you, for them, for us, for everyone who wants to believe and trust him. And now he's going to teach them a little deeper understanding of the prophecies that were written about him before uh, he came in the Old Testament. So number, point number two, hearing the fuller scripture. Verses 11 through 13, let me read those for you. Then, then they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah does come first and restores all things, he replied. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did whatever they pleased to him, just as it is written about him. So the three disciples' curiosity is a little peaked now. Okay, so we saw Elijah, who, who we never had seen before. We saw Elijah. So now they've kind of got their curiosity peaked. Why are we taught that Elijah must come first? And of course, there's all kinds of questions like, is there, are they talking about the original? But the scribes, the Jewish scribes have been teaching that an Elijah was, must come first before the Messiah. That's what they taught. And it's, and it's good that they taught that because that's in Scripture. But see, now they're trying to listen to what Jesus' words are. God said, listen to him. So now they're going back to Mark 8, 31. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, at the hands of the, of, the, of, the, of the Jewish leaders, be killed and rise on. He's, they're trying to understand that. If you are the Messiah, where was Elijah? Because he's supposed to precede you. I mean, they're trying desperately to under, understand that. But, and, and they're referring to a current Jewish interpretation of Malachi chapter 4. And if you want to turn over there, you can. I'm going to read it to you. Malachi chapter 4 is the last book in the Old Testament. Chapter 4. Verses 5 through 6. I really wish that it started Matthew with another letter instead of M. Malachi, chapter 4, 5 and 6. Look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, there's some contemporary application of that prophecy, but there's also some future application, and that's what we're talking about today. A new Elijah will come, and God said so. Malachi 4, 5, and 6. Yet they will think it will be like the original. They think it will be like the Elijah that we all know from, from 1 Kings, the guy whose, whose bones were so holy that when a man it fell into his grave, he came alive. I mean, it's just... They're expecting that kind of Elijah. Lots of miracles, direct preaching, a call to repentance. That's what they're expecting. Well, they got part of that. And so Jesus answers. He says, Elijah has come first and restored the word of God. And that is confirmed in Luke chapter 1, when Luke talks about John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. He says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. That's what John came to do. John came to do that. And that is the fulfillment. And that's why John the Baptist was the Elijah. 
that the Old Testament talks about. So that's confirmed. Jesus confirms it in a couple other places I'll talk about in a minute. But he is the predecessor of the Christ. John the Baptist is meant to come before him, and that's, he's the Elijah that the Scripture talks about. He preached repentance. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. He was constantly calling on them to repent, to come back to the Lord. That's what John, and if you read some of his sermons and some of his discussions with people, he's constantly pointing the people back to God, back to God, which is the story of every prophet's life before this time. So now Jesus follows up with his own question after he's kind of answered their question. Elijah has come. You're wondering about that. But let me ask you this question. The son of man, he's going to be killed. He's going to be treated with contempt. Why? Why do you think that? Why is it written? Because God decreed that the son of man, the Messiah, would suffer. He would be killed. That's been, that's been decreed. Where is that written? Plenty of places. Isaiah 52 through chapter 53, Jeremiah chapter 11, Psalms chapter 22, Psalms chapter 109. There's plenty of other places too that all points to that there's going to be a man come and he's going to die for people's sins. Everyone's sins that's willing to believe. So Jesus is really more, in, in essence, asking more of a rhetorical question than he is a question he expects them to be able to answer. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer many things? He's getting back to Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He's trying to drive them back to that because that is going to drive the rest of the book of Mark. It's going to drive the rest of his ministry on earth. Jesus says that no matter who Elijah is, it doesn't really matter who Elijah is, although he identified John the Baptist, and why John the Baptist came, they're still going to kill him. He's still going to suffer. That doesn't stop that. He prepares the way for the Lord. It is God's will that that happen. And then Jesus kind of ends the conversation with one more confirmation that John the baptizer was the first Elijah. And he was treated like the first Elijah for the most part. Herod and Herodias treated John the Baptist a lot like Ahab and Jezebel treated Elijah. The only difference is Herod and Herodias killed John the Baptist but Jezebel would have killed Elijah if she could have gotten her hands on him. But God protected him. But he was persecuted. She killed prophets. All kinds of stuff went on. But the fact of the matter is, is that doesn't matter who came before him. Jesus gives the disciples kind of a fuller tutorial on the prophecies about the Messiah. He gives them a little bit more clearer picture of what it is. I do not like jigsaw puzzles. I do not like jigsaw puzzles, but... Hey, can you imagine doing a jigsaw puzzle without the, the box top? Just dump, the, dump them out and throw the box top away? If you've ever done them without a box top, hallelujah, good for you. <laughs> but that's what they're getting right now is they're getting pieces without a box top. But Jesus is giving them some information now that they will use later to write letters and gospels that will communicate to us the essence of Christ, the Son of the living God. We have more of God's plans. I mean, this is our box top, folks. This is our box top, our Bible. You ever wonder what God's doing? Read your Bible. You ever wonder what God's going to do? Read your Bible. If you ever wonder what God did, read your Bible. It's the place where we got to go. 
It's our box top to the puzzle of life. Because this is what the Bible says about understanding the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance. Sound familiar? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Sounds like the transfiguration solidified or interpreted there. You know, many times people say, I don't understand the Bible. It's an old, out-of-date book. It's confusing. And they reject it. But the question I ask is, have they read it correctly? Have they read it correctly? See, the Bible was written by 40 different authors across 1,500 years in 10 different genres or styles, literary styles. It's not a do-it-yourself help book. It's not heaven for dummies. It's not that kind of book. It's a book that tells a story. And it all fits together perfectly if we'll just listen as we read it, if we'll just let the Holy Spirit speak to us. You won't understand it all. I don't understand it all. But Jesus teaches how the small parts of the bigger Scripture fit in this particular situation, and it's the same with any of it. It always is pointing to the grander view, the box top of God. It's always pointing in that direction. And we can get a little bit better picture of it. God's Word is meant to be read. It's meant to be understood. And it's meant to be read and understood by the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own ideas. You can read the Bible and understand it. Not all of it. So don't, don't go to Ezekiel and then come to me and say, I don't understand that. I said, God, I don't understand it either. There's some things in Ezekiel that are just puzzling. Read John. Read Mark. Read the Psalms. But if you get to a spot and you get stuck, come ask me. I'll help you. Pastors love to talk about the Bible. We really do. Now, if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know. And I'll try to find out, but I may not be able to find out. There's still some mystery out there. But seeing these prophecies fulfilled in Scripture gives us a little more meat to our faith. Just makes our faith a little more steadfast. See, Jesus uses the Bible. The Holy Spirit uses the Bible to grow our faith. And that should be the goal of everyone, is to grow your faith. Make it stronger. Make it more vibrant. Don't ever stop learning the Bible. You're never, you've never gone to school enough. You've never read it enough. You've never studied it enough. I mean, we study our hobbies. We study our careers. We study all kinds of things. Entertainment. People can tell me all kinds of things about movie stars, but they can't tell me who Jesus is. They can't tell me who Samson is. Study your Bible. Read it. Hear, hear in your ears and your mind the rich verbal sermon that's there, which speaks of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the Word. He is the Word made flesh. He is the epitome of it, the embodiment of it. So, in summary, God preached a kingdom sermon. I mean, He showed it right there on the mountain to those three guys, and we got it recorded. And we got to read it. And he did it by showing his son's glory and the fulfillment of the prophecies about his son. It's a glorious event. And like I said at the beginning, 
the context for this, chap, this passage is all about the kingdom of God. I mean, we sang several songs this morning already about the kingdom of God and what it's going to mean for us and what it's going to be like. The context, the background, the kingdom of God is here. Here now. The Holy Spirit dwells in those of us who have trusted Christ. The kingdom of God is here in our midst. The time has arrived and the Messiah came and the kingdom is at hand. And so what are you doing about it? It should be the greatest news you ever tell anybody. It should be something you just can't wait to get out of your mouth and tell someone. So Jesus tells us to repent and believe. That's the first step. But if you've done that, then God makes it clear that we're also supposed to tell people about Jesus. Because Jesus is the only way to enter that kingdom, which is the kingdom. So Jesus calls you to say, God, this is what he's calling you to do. Have your own way in my life, whatever that means. So let's pray. Let's take some time now in our pastoral prayer to pray through that, to pray about God having his own way in our hearts, that we will deny ourselves, we will take up our crosses, and we will follow because Jesus is God and we know it. And we've got a Savior we can follow. So let's do that during our pastoral prayer. If you'd like to come to the front and pray, please feel free to do that. Let's pray.